0: Hello, welcome to Thought About Food, a podcast on food and food studies. Each episode, we look at important issues around food, and we talk to academics, activists, or policymakers who work on these issues. My name is Ian Werkheiser, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley, and director of the Center for Collaboration and Ethics at UTRGV. I started this podcast when COVID-19 forced us into quarantine down here in South Texas, You know, I started it partly because I wanted an excuse to talk to people who don't live in my house, but also one of my favorite things to research as a philosopher and just think and talk about with my friends is food, because it's such an interesting boundary object. You know, it brings together everything about what it means to be human, from our personal identity to our culture, society, but also laws, economics, politics, and science and art. They all come together in a practical experience we engage in every day. So conversation about food can turn into conversation about anything. Also, it's delicious. As far as philosophical topics goes, it's a lot more fun than thinking about death or the will that wills itself or something. The problem, unfortunately, is that it turns out that it's kind of hard to start a new creative project when you're also dealing with a pandemic that's unprecedented in our lifetimes not to mention a quarantine order that means you're suddenly homeschooling your kids while trying to figure out how to convert your classes to remote instruction. So I have a little bit of a backlog of recordings that I made a few months ago, which I plan to get through quickly. And then once we've caught up, the frequency of the podcast will probably go down a bit. Today, I'm talking to David Leichter about a book chapter he wrote called Edible Justice Between Food Justice and the Culinary Imaginary for the book Food Justice in U.S. and Global Contexts, Bringing Theory and Practice Together, which I co-edited with Zachary Paiso. It's a good book. Check it out. And, you know, I can say that with honesty, because as an academic who put together an academic book, I make precisely zero dollars on each copy sold. So, you know, hit me up if you want hints about where to find PDFs. And if you're Springer Publishing, that was definitely a joke, so don't sue me. If you aren't Springer Publishing, really, do email me. Hit me up. Anyway, the chapter looks at the ways food can be so completely bound up with memories. We all have particular foods that are deeply connected with a time in our lives or a specific event, don't we? Whether it's the taste of food from a country fair in the summer, or your grandmother's recipe that no one's ever made quite the same way she did, or even the memory of bad food, like the institutional cafeteria you ate at in school or in the military. At the same time, David argues in this chapter that food is also wrapped up with community or collective memories. We go into some examples in the interview, but it's easy to think of foods that are important to particular communities and deeply woven into the stories a culture tells about itself. So let me read you David's bio. David Leichter is an associate professor of philosophy and is the current chair of the Department of the Humanities at Marion University, where he regularly teaches introductory courses in philosophy. Bioethics, Philosophy of Law, Existentialism, The Philosophy of Love and Friendship, Monuments, Memory, and Memorials, and, of course, he's taught classes on the philosophy of food. In these courses, he has explored the social, ethical, political, and existential dimensions of memory and the ways that individual and group memory is formed and embodied in material culture. Most recently, he's published essays on graphic novels and on food which explore how memory contributes to one's identity and, more importantly, shows why understanding past injustices is necessary for confronting the challenges facing the present. When not working on philosophy, he spends his time cooking while listening to records from his ever-growing vinyl collection, which, you know, makes sense for someone who's done work on the way memory can be embodied in physical objects. And now, please enjoy my conversation with David Leichter. Uh, How are you doing today, David?
1: Uh, I'm well, thank you.
0: Right. Yeah. So I'm trying to record these uh, podcasts to be interesting and useful months or years from now, but it would be an impossible conversation to not grounded in the fact that uh, there's a pandemic going on outside of uh, both of our houses right now. So since this is a food and philosophy related uh, podcast, how has food uh, changed during this pandemic? Have you been cooking more at home? Are you, uh, you know getting into baking?
1: Uh, you know, I did, I did bake. Uh, I did bake bread for the first time. Uh, I used one of those no need recipes that was, that was popularized 15 years ago, um, and that was that was a lot of fun. Uh, that was the only time I've baked, though. Uh, I've done a lot more cooking, and uh, yeah, it's 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 been weird. There have been times when I've been terrifically thrilled to try something new, and then other days when I say to myself, "Do I really want to cook another meal?" Um, and so, so again, it's 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 been a rather sort of uh, uh, ambiguous experience. I think, you know, sure.
0: uh, I mean, the the good news is you're you get to tell yourself you're virtuous either way because you're either cooking at home, which is you know a lovely grounding experience in a stressful time, or you can support local economy, you know, trying to build things up by ordering food. So either way, either way, you're winning.
1: Exa- exactly, man, and that's exactly how uh, how my partner and I have have talked about this. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I uh I sometimes uh, have told people well, you know, as an ethicist I'm professionally good at justifying what I want to do anyway, so we'll sh- we should be fine.
1: <laughs> yep. <laughs> so,
0: so some of the uh some of the work that you have done uh including uh, the chapter for the book uh that we did together um And some of your other work is on memory, which I think is really interesting. But a phrase that you've used, um, which isn't originally yours, but I think you take it in a neat direction, is this idea of edible memory. So can you explain what that
1: is for our listeners? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it sort of comes out of, uh, I think, a really sort of common experience that, uh, that I think a lot of people are really sort of having right now, especially, right? That sort of return to comfort foods. Uh, and those foods that uh, that nourished them when they were kids, and so I think the uh, the idea of edible memory, I think, is takes two things, right? The first is that um, it's a very sort of personal memory that we have, right? When we eat food, uh, it, uh, it motivates us to to remember particular things, um, but at the same time, I think this notion of edible memory also uh, allows us to see both the very personal and very sort of social ways that uh, that our memories are embodied in context, right? And so I think one of the strengths of, of this concept is that it gets memory out of the head and into practice, right? That memory is something that we do, not just something that we know.
0: Yeah. So part of it um, is this idea that Uh, You know, like our memories can be really triggered by particular foods or smells. I think that's really interesting. Um, But what gets really, uh, what makes it really fascinating to me is this idea uh, of how we share food and therefore, I guess, share memories with one another, because there's a difference between me eating something that reminds me of my own childhood and me cooking something for you that reminds me of my own childhood. Can you talk about what, what that process is
1: like? Yeah, right. So, um, so again, I think, I think sort of beginning with this notion that memory is a doing, right? Uh, it makes memory a very sort of public thing, right? Um, it's not like, um, sort of, uh, Wittgenstein's private language argument where only I know my own feelings, uh, or only I know my own sensations, but, um, memory comes, comes into being, um, interactively. And so, uh, so as you said, so when you share uh, a food that you have had with me, in some ways we are sharing, uh, sharing your past, right? That you are inviting me into, uh, into inhabiting, in some ways, uh, your, own, your own past. Uh, and so I think, as I said, this, this makes it a, a very sort of social and public process rather than this um, uh, interior process that we get from, say, someone like um, Proust's Remembrance of Things Past, where it's a very interior, Right, it's uh, it becomes much more social.
0: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, it would be a different book if Proust had sat some people down and said, "Have these delicious cookies and <laughs> let's talk about my childhood." And you know, I've locked the door. You'll be sitting here for the next fourteen hours.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, and as I said, that's I think that's really where uh, I think the um, the the impetus for this for this sort of comes from is uh, that um, food. Often, right, when we think about the the meals that we that we have had, I think the most memorable meals that we have had uh are the ones that uh that connect us, right? Whether it's sort of a highly ritualized meal like a Passover Seder, uh, or even you know the comfort foods, right? The the, the craft macaroni and cheese that my mother would make me, right? Um Remembering even that, right, reminds me of of my mother. It reminds me of a social relationship.
0: So so there's a difference maybe between this idea that I happen to have an association with macaroni and cheese or with Madeline's, um, and this idea of an heirloom food, right? Something that is maybe a shared culture. So maybe we could talk about that. Because I think the word heirloom for most people either when it's not associated with food is, you know, a particular valuable thing from you know your grandmother that you have up on the shelf somewhere but when it's an heirloom food we would think of probably heirloom tomatoes first and by that we don't mean anything for my grandmother we just mean an ugly tomato at the grocery store that tastes very delicious and is expensive
1: yeah right and i think the the uh the, the notion of an heirloom i think is really interesting um especially in the way that we use it today right that um uh an heirloom tomato is as as you said is uh uh we think of it as something special, right? The uh, the heirloom tomatoes that we get at the grocery store are two or three dollars more a pound than the conventionally, you know, than the than the conventional tomatoes. Um, and so, uh, so on the one hand, we have this notion of an heirloom as as something that's passed down. Uh, and then on the other hand, the way that we sort of think about heirloom foods now is uh, that it also separates us or highlights our separation from the past right, that uh, these heirloom tomatoes are no longer the ones that we regularly have, right, they are the ones that are, that are special in some way, they're marked out. And so I think in, when we talk about heirlooms, we're talking about sort of this both connection with the past and separation from the past. Uh, yeah,
0: that's interesting, talk about that, because it occurs to me, you know, an heirloom tomato is something that for many of us, we would be trying for the first time, so, and if not an heirloom tomato, then any other sort of heirloom varietal. Um, because the one from our actual childhood, the one that we remember, is a standard industrial agricultural kind of um, mass-produced vegetable. So to call it heirloom is interesting because it's it's a new experience, a new experience for most of us. So what's what is giving it that um, that moniker?
1: Yeah, I um, think with 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 the heirloom. I mean, as I said, I think there's a real sort of um, political way of thinking about the heirloom tomato now, right? Because uh, it, it is something that we did not eat, you know, growing up. Uh, and in some ways, when we start thinking about heirloom tomatoes, it mobilizes in us uh, a whole host of connected beliefs, right? That perhaps this tomato is what a real tomato tastes like, or this tomato is one that um, that people grew in in the past, uh, and then that mobilizes, uh, I think, a whole host of different ways uh, that we think about that past. Uh, whether it's uh, through the through some sort of nostalgic eyes, where we idealize a uh, a, a victory garden, perhaps, or even prior to that, right when um, uh, when the U.S. was perhaps a little more agrarian. Uh, and so, uh, and so, it's really interesting to start using this this term heirloom, right, both as a, as a way to sort of drive up the price of particular foodstuffs, uh, but as I said, it also sort of mobilizes a, a whole host of ways that we think about the past and think about who perhaps grew them, right, um, because quite often uh, perhaps our, uh, I, I think nowadays our, our grandparents perhaps uh, did not eat heirloom tomatoes, maybe uh, not even our great-grandparents, eight heirloom tomatoes but it still nevertheless gives us that nostalgic feeling and it still gets us to think about a a past that perhaps never existed and a past that um we want to return to right and so it's uh, I think it mobilizes a feeling of nostalgia as well that uh that a lot of grocers and a lot of uh other seed companies can really uh, uh motivate
0: yeah so this gets to a sort of a An interesting other way to think about edible memory, right? So it's not just my own memory or even a shared memory if we sit down at a table together, but it can be this imagined memory that you're consuming, right? I'm going to hopefully get Dave Kaplan on here a little bit later on this podcast. And he's talked about how ethics have a particular flavor, right? So part of the eating experience, the taste experience is. Knowing that something is ethically produced or not ethically produced, and that alters the way that the food—it's part of what you're eating, right—is—is is this awareness of the background of the food if it's if it's available to you, or part of what you're eating is an uncertainty about you know its its origins. And the same can be said maybe for edible memory that if I'm going out and buying something and eating it, part of why I enjoy it, certainly part of what I would tell you about it if I invited you to my house to help you have the same experience I'm having, is uh, this claim to the past this kind of nostalgia or sort of a maybe even like a heideggerian kind of authenticity, this idea that I'm eating the real tomato it really is part of what you're eating right is this memory even if it isn't yours or anyone else's <laughs> uh, which gets us to this other phrase you sometimes use about culinary imaginary can you talk about what's that and how is that related to the edible memory
1: yeah I think um, yeah I think one of the ideas that I'm using with this notion of, of, a, of a culinary imaginary is uh, right when we when uh, when people talk about the imaginary, right, it's uh, it's this whole host of sort of cultural and symbolic meanings, right that that uh, that help to uh, pardon the pun, right, to flavor our experiences. And so, um, so when we eat something, when we eat something, uh, it does sort of create those affective relationships and those affective bonds, both in the present and in the past. Um, sometimes these bonds are wholly imagined as well right that uh uh that we are nostalgic for a past that perhaps never existed uh perhaps also we are nostalgic for a past that did exist and so and so the 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 culinary imaginary uh as as i sort of see it uh is not only part of the uh uh the folk ways or the food ways that we are part of, but there are, it's also something that uh, that we can contribute to when we cook something differently, uh, when we add some something else to it, right? And so there's, I think there's this dialectic between, say, uh, tradition, right, the ways that this food has been passed down to us, and uh, and innovation, right, uh, what we do with it as well, right? And so I think that culinary imaginary encompasses both of those aspects, right, so that. Um, uh, it's never static, it's always sort of uh, developing, and it's always in relationship between the past, present, and, and the future, right? Who we want to project ourselves to be, who we want to identify ourselves as, as well.
0: Okay, so in that case, clearly sometimes it can just be a product that we're consuming, you know, one more choice for us in the marketplace, I want a red tomato, or I want a big tomato, or I want a tomato that makes me think about, you know, Americans' resilience. Um, you know, that, that's, that's the flavor that I want. Um, and, and, you know, you were saying in fact that, uh, you know, it's metaphorical. I don't even know that it is. I mean, Lisa Heltke has talked about eating as a consummatory experience. I mean, part of what makes this meal happen, part of the aesthetic appreciation of it isn't just your tongue and your nose. It's also what you're thinking of at the time, you know? Um, so is this always going to be just something that we buy, something trapped in this kind of capitalist, uh, consumptive act or, could it like could it motivate us towards action? I mean could you know you, you, you were saying it could help us think about who we want to be? Could it have you know more positive benefits than just being one more one more thing that rich people can buy
1: yeah, I think so, I think so um, and and this gets back to I think something that we touched on earlier about um, memory as a doing right rather than um, just as a thinking so so I think one of the ideas that uh, that I want to highlight here about this notion of memory as a doing is that it can motivate us to, to do things, right? That um, eating this tomato uh, will, may motivate me to uh, go start a garden, uh, it may motivate me to go to the farmer's market uh, and talk to people in a different way. And so, uh, and so I think in that sense, um, memory, uh, edible memory as well, can make those, make those connections with others in really profound ways and so uh and so i i think as 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 you said there's that uh terrific sort of um potentiality that comes with edible memory uh that it can motivate us to to do positive things to create new some of those new bonds new relational bonds by going to those farmers markets going um going and uh planting a garden and rethinking what our relationship with the earth is right and so forth and so um And so I think that it's all sort of caught up in in that sort of way of uh, how we carry ourselves, right? How we eat, how we connect with others, how we connect with the world around us.
0: Yeah, so one way to really ground this conversation in like a particular uh, example is let's think about the idea of eating and cooking food from other cultures, Right. So in your chapter, you talk about Rick Bayless. He's a well-known Chicago, I believe, chef who is well-known for cooking Mexican food, uh, despite not himself being Mexican-American. Um, and there is sort of, so there's sort of a, um, there's a question, right? A potential problem around the idea of enjoying ethnic food as ethnic food, right? Like, I want you to go try ethnic food. And certainly maybe opening a restaurant <laughs> like he did where you are, t- where you're trumpeting authentic Mexican food, whatever that means. So is is it a, like, is it, uh, should we be concerned? Should we feel, should we be careful about eating food from other cultures uh, or, you know, is there a potential upside? Like what are your thoughts about this idea of maybe cultural appropriation and eating food from other
1: places? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. It's uh, something that I often think about too. Uh, uh, I often worry about that too. Um, because yeah, you don't want to uh, you don't want to sort of claim that food as your own. You don't want to um, sort of have this experience where uh, even if you travel uh, travel to Mexico, uh, even if you spend a lot of time in Mexico, um, there still is a sense in which uh, that food isn't yours, uh, right? Rick Bayless has the opportunity to freely travel uh, across borders in ways that uh, that perhaps a lot of other uh, Mexicans aren't able to. Uh, he's able to. Um, Use a, a whole bunch of money that he has to promote a particular kind of food, which uh, which indigenous people aren't able to. And so, I think with uh, with Rick Bayless specifically, uh, you know, there's there's always that sort of problem of um, of appropriation. Uh, the other thing that makes things a lot more complicated, I think, is that um, you know, uh, food travels right? Um, tomatoes aren't indigenous to Italy, but we can't think of Italian cuisine without the tomato. Um, similarly, we can't think of Indian food without chilies, and chilies aren't indigenous to India. And so uh, and so, on the one hand, there's a real important sense in which we do have to sort of respect the ways that um, cultures come into contact with one another. And in that sort of area of contact, there's uh, great potential for uh, cultural transmissions in both positive and negative ways, right? Um, you know, uh, in India, for example, as I just mentioned, I mean, uh, was a colonized state, it was a colonized nation by uh, by the British, uh, to such an extent that in some ways, uh, chicken tikka masala has become a British cuisine, right? Uh, and so I think that there's really important ways that we have to attend to the potential um, uh, negative effects of that cultural transmission. Um, but as you said, there's there's also really sort of positive ways. I mean, um, Italian food with tomatoes is just wondrous, right? You go to Italy and you have a, a pizza there and it's unlike anything, you know, that you've tasted here. Uh, and so, there is something I think really, really positive about that cultural transmission, but we also have to be really careful about um when it sort of oversteps that line. And we say, no, this is actually our food, not their food, or I have the right to show other people this food.
0: Yeah, it seems like um, you know, I don't know. So cultural transmission is a really helpful tool, a really helpful phrase to think about this, I think. Um and then as opposed to say maybe cultural exploitation, right? So moving away from the loaded phrase of appropriation, where it's not really clear from whom are you appropriating it, or like what would it look like to have permission to use something, so you aren't appropriating it. Who who votes to give you permission about that? But exploitation certainly uh, we can understand. I mean, we've thought was at least since the eighteen hundreds about what exactly we mean by that. So there's so that is different from a transmission and a sharing, perhaps. Um, so okay, so it seems like there's definitely some dangers, right? You wouldn't want to be maybe somebody who uh, put yourself forward as an expert in what you are claiming is a very authentic food and then employing low-paid chefs in your restaurant to help you make that, <clears throat> uh, you know, those, those sorts of issues. Um, it does seem like you can certainly share, right? There's a form of transmission and sharing and even modification. I mean, Italian pizza as you're saying, would be nothing without tomatoes. But Chicago deep dish pizza is good too. It's not recognizable as Italian food in any way, but it's quite good. So that makes sense. But then is there, is there a possibility of something much more positive? Like, so there's a, a risk, and then there's maybe a way that we can negotiate our way through it. But is there something on the other side of that? Is there some way that it could be uh, some sort of positive form of solidarity, some kind of building connections in a way that might actually have political potential rather than just avoiding pitfalls?
1: Yeah, no, I think, uh, I I really think so. Um, Let me give uh, 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 another example. Um, So uh, there is a a chef in Racine, Wisconsin, who's cooking uh, Laotian food. He was born in a refugee camp in uh, 1979, and uh, grew up in Southeastern Wisconsin uh with his family. He often he often says, you haven't seen anyone skin a deer until you've seen his his mother, you know, um, skin a deer. And uh uh and he's been cooking Laotian food, Laotian food that he learned at the refugee camp, uh times when he returned to to, to Laos. And uh in the last three years, he's been really sort of emphasizing uh this notion that right by eating his food right? We're getting a sense of what it means to be a refugee. We get a sense of what it means to have that cultural connection. Uh, we get a sense of what it means to, um, to stand, with, uh, stand with refugees in a really important sense uh, through his food. Um, and what's really interesting about the way that he sort of does this and the way that he sort of presents this is that he gets people who, who come to his pop-up right? To sort of think about what it means to be a refugee. And I mean, these dishes are sumptuous. Uh, They're just terrific, the way he prepares them. Um, And so I'm not sure that they might be exactly what they ate, um, but they nevertheless get uh, get all of the participants who go to those pop-ups to think about what it means to be a refugee, what it means to support refugees, uh, what it means to support him, what it means to support... um, Community agriculture and what it means to su- to support community businesses, and so uh, and so he he's able to interweave all of these different threads together in uh, in a big bowl of fun.
0: Right, so that can be a real site for conversation. I mean, I know that uh, particularly refugee cuisine uh, in the United States can be a way to know that there are these other communities living in your midst and get to know them in a way that you're, you know, you're sharing a boundary object so you can come to, you know, literally come to, come to one table together and uh, help to see the other communities that are existing all around you.
1: Exactly, exactly. Uh, And I think that there's a, that's a real sort of important moment to have, right? Um, Especially as as people, um, as people do try to seek out, uh, seek out these different kinds of food, right? That, um, you know, we shouldn't just think of this as, you know, uh, an adventure in eating, but really, uh, uh, a moment where we can share in one another's presence where a, uh, where a past that perhaps challenges us, uh, comes to the fore, right? Um, you know, uh, as, 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 as the chef and I were talking one day, you know, um, I think one of the things that sort of came, uh, came to light was, was this notion that, um, uh, at least in the American imaginary, right, that the Vietnam War ended in 1975 and the U.S. withdrew and that was that, you know. Uh, and what we don't remember is that uh, even even afterwards, even in, in those years afterwards, there were refugee camps of people who were displaced because of uh, U.S. military intervention in uh, in Vietnam, in Laos, in Cambodia, uh, and that this was the result of, uh, of very bad U.S. Policy, right, and so um, and so it was a really sort of good moment for us to sort of connect on that level and say, wait a second, there was a, a much greater human cost than we initially imagined, right, and we do need to sort of wrestle with that, and you know we do need to sort of think about what the implications of that of that is.
0: Yeah, there's a there's an organization in East Lansing, Michigan. I'm going to try to get them on if I can uh, that helps refugees and immigrants to the to michigan to start their own Farm or their own community gardens and then eventually building up to a farm and selling at this uh shared farmers market because uh What a lot of people who were refugees managed to bring with them was Some seeds that they preserved that were very important to them and they know how to grow food They just they might not know how to grow food in the michigan weather, but they they know growing they know but um, Entering into an American uh, market, figuring out how to negotiate that and make some income is a real way to help people, but also um, it's a way to share who they are and their stories. And it's been it's been a
1: really I think interesting project. Well, that does that does sound really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll send you along some information about it. No, oh, thank you. One uh, of the other things that you just mentioned, that, you know, also sort of bears on this, right? That um, you know, when when people um, when people come to different countries, whether it's uh, because they're refugees, whether it's uh, because they were forced to, uh, whether it's uh, voluntary, um, that, uh, that yeah, you do have to sort of shift how you make your cuisine now, right? That um, uh, you know the, the daikon radish might not grow in this climate in the same way. Uh, and so how do you substitute those things out? right and so there's there's always this sort of process of negotiation you know how do we preserve how do we preserve what came before us but can still nourish us in this very different climate in this very different space where we have different access to very different things and so i think that there's this 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 interesting sort of moment where you do have to make those decisions about what to preserve what to transform how do we ensure that the transformed cuisine still connects back to the um, uh, to the previous cuisine that uh, that one ate.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. You mentioning voluntariness uh, just made me think that you know not all food memories, not all edible memory, is of something delicious, right? And that and for particular reasons. So if you think about say African American slave cuisine. Um Or just the cuisine of anyone who's faced extreme poverty, uh, that is limited not because they wanted to just work with a few ingredients or something, but because uh, but by necessity, and recognizing that can actually be part of um, edible memory. I mean, you know, we're talking about all this. Uh, if you think about like some of the food that people eat at Passover is intentionally designed to recall non-voluntariness right involuntary uh, choices that people made at the time and rehearsing that every generation uh through food
1: yeah yeah um yeah that's 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 a really good a really good example right uh, bitter herbs uh matzah um you know uh passover is is a joyous holiday but the foods that you eat are decidedly not joyous and so uh yeah right um i know uh, a couple uh a couple of my African American friends, you know, have have said that they've had chitlins and will never have them again. You know, and it's the same sort of thing where uh, why would you want to be reminded of that? And perhaps one of the things that um, the edible memory can can encourage us to to think about those sorts of those sorts of relationships, right? That that this memory is perhaps not one that I should have, or this memory is perhaps not one that I like having but it nevertheless is is important.
0: Yeah, and it, it grounds it and, you know, uh, I think is a way of preserving it and making it a focus of discussion in a way that we can lose. You know, uh, so your chapter in the book on um, that importance of preserving edible memory, I have my students read it very early in the semester uh, when I teach a philosophy of food class because one of the assignments I have them do is bring a food to class that has some meaning for them. And... Uh, I have them read that so that we can t- discuss what what I mean by some meaning for them um, and why I think it 's worthwhile to share food like that and as a result we 've had some really interesting things I mean sometimes people just bring delicious food that they have, but i 've had students that have brought food that they hate, and the reason why they hate it is because it was the thing that they would eat in their house when their father was between work when they didn 't have any money. This is the way that their mom would make things last like it might just be you know small pasta and a can of tomato sauce and maybe some oregano and literally that's all and so it's too salty it's over processed it's not good for you it's not fun um and you know but that flavor is so uh memorable to them as a time of worry and stress um and trying to make things and trying to make do and they want to share that as a meaningful food memory with, uh, the class. And we've had some really, and, you know, and then a lot of the students will have the same or similar memories themselves. And so it can go in very interesting kinds of directions, uh, to think about not food just as a delicious way to preserve a memory of how tasty something is, but, um, as a, a framework for discussing all kinds of different memories.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a terrific, uh, terrific example. Um, and I, I, I really, I really appreciate that your students bring in, um, food that they that they don't like uh that it that forms a bad memory because all too often i think we we do have that um that sort of nostalgic tie to food right that this was this was good food right um or that you know that Kraft macaroni and cheese is is comforting in some ways and that uh and i like those examples where uh where there's food that's eaten that's not comforting um and i think it's really important to sort of to again, sort of highlight that relationality of memory, right, that uh, uh, that sort of going back to this notion that uh, uh, memory is involved in a social context, right? Uh, the fact that um, perhaps, uh, perhaps let's say I didn't have Kraft macaroni and cheese, right, um, in some ways that does mean that uh, that I don't have the same sort of Background experience as people uh, who did have to make do with with those foods that were perhaps um, not comforted by having Kraft macaroni and cheese, and that uh, that I might have to sort of think about what that now means. And so I think that um, that those sorts of moments where uh, where we recognize not only that we have two different memories of the same thing, but that the the very fact that I had access to a particular kind of food situates me differently with regard to food than perhaps others.
0: Yeah. One of the interesting um, foods that a student brought you know, sort of in regards to that was blueberries. And she brought them to talk about how much she doesn't like them. So blueberries are very, you know, they, they don't grow here in South Texas. They're imported, they're expensive, and most people regard blueberries as pretty delicious. But for her, uh, blueberries were backbreaking labor when she was a kid of picking them. They would go on this triangle of um, picking her family of South Texas to Michigan to somewhere on the West Coast, um, you know, California or somewhere, and back again in order to sort of stay in picking season for as long as possible throughout the year. And so this is a backbreaking labor of picking these blueberries. She very clearly remembered the cool, misty feeling of pesticides going over her, which she enjoyed when she was a kid in the hot summer picking things blowing over from another field. Um, And so, you know, this dirty sort of unpleasant experience where she wasn't in school. And then that got transformed when you look in the grocery store to an expensive uh, product back at home that people wealthier people, whiter people in South Texas would be buying. as, And it was laid out often um, here at our local HEB, which is a, you know the local grocery store chain, in a sort of faux farming context. So like it would be in a basket with some images of farms behind it and some farmers to make it look just like you're on the farm as you're getting this basket of blueberries. And that was such a falseness for her uh, that she she could never eat them, right? It was, you know, because she, she would sometimes pick one or two and eat them while she was on the field. And so it was a, a supreme sense of memory of that, but also just looking at that and seeing the way that people would want to pretend that they were at a farm as they purchased these things, and not knowing the work that went into them, uh, I think is really
1: significant. Oh, yeah, yeah, right, and that gets to that sort of, that sort of moment of, of, of quasi-nostalgia, right, where um, right, uh, a, lot of, a lot of our food, right, when we go to the grocery store, um, seems to just sort of magically appear there. Um, you know the fact that uh, that we can have that we have access to tomatoes twelve months a year, um, the fact that we have access to blueberries twelve months a year, uh, right, and that sort of thing, um, profoundly sort of decontextualizes a lot of uh, a lot of our food, and um, uh, in some ways uh, I, I, that story uh, that that your student tells is is a really important sort of recontextualization of it, right? That. Um, uh, I might not have a memory specifically of blueberries apart from uh, blueberry pie that uh, perhaps my grandmother used to make um, but it 's also really important I think as 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 you point out to to think about well wait a second, the food that we that we do have somebody somebody produced that food, and somebody has a very different relationship with that particular food than we do and uh it implicates us. It implicates us in um, being responsible for something that, uh, that we didn't directly participate in.
0: Let's talk about that idea of implication. So in what ways or to what extent do you think we are, like, what does it mean to be implicated in, in something uh, when we participate in food or in an edible memory? Like, I'd love you to talk a little bit more about
1: that concept. Yeah. Um, so one of the things I think is really is really interesting about uh, about the way this concept of edible memory sort of uh, unpacks, is that uh, we can have a memory of something that we didn't actually experience, right? Um, and I think in some ways uh, that might make us responsible for the things that we do remember, right? That uh, perhaps in some ways the uh, uh, the choices of what to eat, where to eat, how to eat, um, it puts on this particular sorts of uh, responsibilities to know where it comes from, to know uh, who's affected by these particular practices, right? That uh, that my choice to, 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 to go have a tomato right now or a tomato uh, in February, um, someone made that tomato, someone produced that tomato and someone picked that tomato. Uh, And so, is my desire for that tomato, does that sort of, how does that insert me into this food system? How does this insert me into uh, this particular food way uh, or this particular cuisine? Uh, And it's not something that becomes this sort of free floating choice that we make, right? Rather, um, it inserts us or implicates us in a network of relationships and it uh, makes us. in some ways, responsible for uh, for those choices.
0: Yeah. So, is do you think food is special in this regard? I mean, this might be sort of an obvious question since both you Ev and I have taught classes on and written about this. But is is food unique in any way for these sorts of ideas? Because you could you could I suppose create sort of the same argument with uh, clothing, right? So particular clothes might be associated with particular memories with particular cultures. There's issues about wearing the clothes of other cultures. Um, There's ways that it can be done um, perhaps, and perhaps it's inevitable that fashion moves the same way that foods move. Um, But certainly you could imagine it being done in an exploitative sort of appropriative way. Uh, And we are, you know, we are immediately implicated in this web of production that gets food to our, or that gets clothing to our, stores and onto our backs. So is food just, uh, Justin, one of the examples of the many ways that we're connected with each other, or do you think that there's maybe something more to it?
1: You know, I, th- I think there is something more to it. And I think the, uh, the something more is, um, uh, has to do with the fundamentality of food, right? That, um, uh, food is, uh, is a fundamental necessity, uh, and that, uh, the experience of hunger is, um, a profound experience, right? In in, in a lot of ways, uh, ranging from um, you know ascetics who fast for religious experiences, uh, down to uh, people who are impoverished, right? Uh, the experience of hunger is a is a profound experience, and so I think that um, that food occupies a really a really sort of central way in the ways that we conceive of ourselves because it is so necessary for us to live right we can't we can't not eat
0: right yeah this idea that uh everyone eats and it's a a recurrent vulnerability a daily vulnerability uh which you know the most privileged of us are still aware of right (laughs) i mean even even if you are even if you've never been food insecure in your life uh you have had to you have felt hunger right all of us have, have realized that we need to eat uh, so it's it's a kind of constant reminder that we might not get from other sorts of things.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and I think there's I think there's a lot of work to be done around this notion of hunger. Um, you know, a, a phenomenology of hunger, or sort of that existential experience uh, of hunger. Uh, right. I think uh, I think Sartre writes about it in Being and Nothingness, um, and subordinates uh, the desire for food to. Um, uh, to sexual desire, right? Sartre uh, uh, finds that sexual desire is the real sort of the real sort of human desire. Um, but there are times when I when I really sort of think about that, right? Well, maybe maybe it is that experience of hunger, right? Where it's not, uh, it isn't sort of um, for my own sake that I'm eating, but uh, but rather, you know, uh, an experience for some sort of connection, right? And that we can. Uh, use that uh, experience of hunger to understand this mutual web of dependence that we have. Right, that uh, that my hunger is because of particular government policies, right, or uh, that my hunger is the result of um, of other things, right? That it's uh, that it does sort of implicate does implicate us, right? It connects us uh, back to one another.
0: Yeah, one of the issues coming uh right now, I mean, who knows how long it'll take me to get this edited and on air, but happening uh as we are speaking is this uh is food shortages around meat um due to people being unable to work at meat processing facilities in the pandemic. And that's really interesting in a lot of ways. I mean, of course, uh you know, food shortages are no no light matter. Um, but they are making people sort of realize that work, for example, working at a food processing plant is always a dangerous, bad job. You know, as they're describing particularly why, uh, COVID-19 is spreading so easily there, you have to describe the working conditions, which are truly terrible, right? And so people get to sort of notice how bad that is all the time. Um, and also, uh, thinking through, uh, the, how, how much meat Americans need to eat, you know, and uh, our President declared that uh, you know it's a vital necessity for government security that we produce a certain amount of meat i mean that's that's an interesting statement that people can pause and think about um, that you know that the, those problems you know sort of uh, I was saying to someone the other day it's like when you injure your back and all of a sudden you get an anatomy lesson in the many ways and different times that you use that muscle in your back that you would have otherwise not noticed. oh, I apparently engage my back muscles to sneeze well <laughs> and when we realize these kinds of vulnerabilities uh you know having something missing from the shelves can show people, even people who have a secure income and can purchase things uh, that they're, you know, what this problem is like. And, you know, I'm going to be interviewing somebody uh, in a couple of days from our local food bank about uh, how they're trying to deal with this, but one would hope that it has, it helps people who have the means to think about uh, shortages that you can't, you know, that aren't getting fixed.
1: Yeah, no, I think I think that's exactly right. Um, yeah, whether it is work, uh, whether it is um, thinking about uh, thinking about the food bank, uh, you know, working at a food bank, uh, seeing seeing a lot of those lines, um, you know, that uh, I know that a lot of food banks are are, are really stretched thin right now. Um, and so and so, yeah, it's 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 something that uh, food is something I think that a lot of people take for granted in ways that they don't take other material objects for granted. And so, uh, and so, I think that's that's why it's really important then to sort of see and and understand that that sort of fundamentality of food right there.
0: Yeah. So, um, you know, as I was saying, we have I have my students share food, and what I would love you to do is share food now with everybody listening. But the closest we can get to that is this is virtually. I ask you to uh, submit a recipe. So. Can you talk about uh, the one that you sent along to me? And I'm gonna make it available in the show notes for everyone to check out.
1: Yeah, sure. Uh so yeah, so this 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 gets at that problem of cultural appropriation again, right? Um so uh so this is a recipe for uh for moon dal, right? Uh, a terrific, terrific sort of lentil soup. Um and it's uh it's a simple, it's a simple dish. Uh you cook a cup of moon beans in three and a half cups of water until uh until they're soft, uh you puree that up and then uh, you add this sort of um spice perfumed butter or uh or oil if uh if you want right and then um uh in that in that uh, in that oil there's uh cumin ginger uh, uh some chilies, and then you sort of heat that up, pour it on top of the dal, freshen it all up with some coriander some um uh, some cilantro and some lime juice. Uh, one of the things I love about this is that it was it's it's a simple recipe. Uh, it's filling um, and it's easy. Uh, I came to this recipe. Um, I want to say about twenty years ago. I was just out of college and uh, I realized that I had to learn how to cook. That um, you know I I didn't I couldn't go to the school cafeteria anymore. Um, and so, uh, and so I figured that the best way to learn how to cook, and I don't know why I sort of thought this, um, but I said, Indian food, uh, if you want to learn how to cook, learn how to cook Indian food, um, because that food, uh, you know, it's, it's mostly vegetarian, there's a strong sort of vegetarian strain in a lot of Indian cooking. And, uh, you know, if, if you really want to be a good cook, you need to be able to make vegetables taste good. I don't. Weird sort of reasoning, I know, but uh, but that's that's what it was. And um, I I came across this cookbook, and uh, this this recipe has just been in my uh, sort of stable of recipes for the last twenty years. It's uh, I can grade papers while while making it. Uh, I can listen to a podcast while making it. Um, uh, I can make it while hungover, uh, and so it's it's, it's terrific. Um, uh, it's flavorful.
0: That's great. Yeah, I'm, ex- I, I'm excited to try it. You know, this, is, this entire podcast is just a uh, thinly veiled attempt for me to get recipes from friends of mine to make <laughs> it my house. <laughs> well, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today, David. Um, I, I bet I'm going to have to grab you back on the podcast some future time to talk about these issues some more. Um, but I really appreciate it.
1: Excellent. My pleasure.
0: Thank you so much. That was my interview with David Leichter. I'm going to put a number of things in the show notes, including links to read more of David's work, which I strongly recommend, as well as the recipe he shared with us. If you'd like to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you find your podcasts, I'd appreciate it. It helps people find the show. You can also follow us on Twitter at foodthoughtpod. And if you have a topic you'd like to hear discussed, or you have a question or a comment, please drop us a line at thoughtaboutfood at gmail.com. Until next time, thanks for listening to Thought About Food. I hope you enjoyed thinking about food with us today.